0: Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Mitchell Silver, FAICP. Mitch is the Commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation and is a past president of the American Planning Association. Mitch, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Courtney, glad to be here.
0: So you made a big move about four years ago, sort of from a more general planning position to become Commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that decision and what it's like to focus only on one land use?
1: Uh, well first it was a very difficult decision and uh, I was recruited. I was very happy in North Carolina uh, but after meeting with the mayor uh, we had this interesting exchange because I first told him I was not interested. He said why? I said because parks is 20% planning 80% operations. and He said that's why we want to hire you. Uh, we want someone with a fresh new perspective and we're looking for a 21st century park system. One that was equitable Uh, and had great parks in all neighborhoods. Secondly, I told the mayor that I will not be able to stay in my parks sandbox, uh, that parks are connected to streets and sidewalks and civic life. And so from my perspective, uh, I saw parks as not just these islands of green spaces, but as connected to other things. And so for that reason, I decided to come back and see what I could do to change the Robert Moses era playgrounds and make sure that every neighborhood had safe, equitable and accessible parks So I decided to make that change.
0: A lot of careful consideration and design goes into creating great places, and that's true for parks as well. What are some of the things you see that others may not?
1: Well, first, I actually spend a lot of time in parks. Uh, I have a background in design. I have an undergraduate degree in architecture. I like to observe how people use space because I don't just want to be a designer. I want to be an experienced builder. And I do that by observing how people use parks. I'll go there on weekends, I'll watch where people sit, how they walk, how they interact with the space, uh, I look at the sun, I feel the wind, I watch how people walk into a park and what do their, what their eyes do, because after coming off a busy street and entering a park, you're now in this safe oasis, this green space. So I watch people and I observe. They don't know I'm observing them, but I watch them, um, how they use the various features in our parks. So for me, parks are places, and I want to observe and see how people experience the space so I know how to plan better. For example, uh, when I watch... Uh, our senior citizens when they engage in public space. Uh, they tend to want to have very comfortable sight lines. They tend to sit at the edges. They're looking for places to sit. Uh, there are other people with families in the hot summer and they run to the trees to sit under it to get some shade on a hot summer day. Uh, I look where people sit for views. So all that is wrapped up into the experience of the place. And so that is where I start first and foremost. I encourage all my staff to go out and experience the space before a pen or I probably it's now digital, before their finger hits the keyboard when they start designing.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important to um, think about how different people use spaces differently. And that really struck me when I became a mother, obviously enjoying my neighborhood parks in a much different way. Probably many of them I honestly hadn't stepped a foot in, and now I, I go there at least once a week. So that's great that you're paying attention to how people use space differently. Um, Also in my neighborhood, I'm lucky to live a couple of blocks from the 606, which is our elevated uh, park line, much bigger than the High Line in New York, and I would argue cooler, but I'm probably just being uh, biased here, creating a little city competition. Uh, But the 606 is creating uh, some controversy due to rapidly rising housing prices and development pressure that people associate with the park improvement. Um, you're hearing the, the gentrification word, the G word being thrown out quite a bit. How does your department approach issues like this?
1: Well, first we realized that uh, when you approve a park space, there is, depending on the neighborhood and the location, a possibility you'll see uh, home prices increase. Uh, but from our perspective, uh, we will not deny a neighborhood uh, the improvement of the neighborhood park because the alternative is do nothing. Uh, in our city, uh, we have uh, well over 200 parks that hadn't seen investment in over 20 years. We believe that's not fair. Uh, we want to improve those spaces. And so for us to say, well, we're concerned there's a possibility that gentrification will occur, so we're not going to improve this park. We cannot deny these young children a quality space. We cannot deny you know, seniors a place to age gracefully. So we have other elements. We work with the city uh, that deal with displacement issues uh and so that is how we approach it but from our perspective we will not deny a park improvement to a community or a city for fear of gentrification we handle it other ways because we want to make sure that everyone has access to quality space for health uh, for physical for mental well-being and so for us we just feel this that that's a false choice and we'll go ahead and make sure that those places get improvement And so you know, the High Line is one of the most Instagram parks on the planet. So uh, I'm sure the 606 will catch up one of these
0: days. (laughs) Now, you grew up in Brooklyn. I'm curious how that shaped your interest in places and planning.
1: I was very fortunate that I lived literally two blocks from Prospect Park. So growing up, that was my backyard. How I discovered nature was in Prospect Park and right nearby the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where I saw this babbling brook for the first time in my life at a young age like three. Uh, I was always fascinated by cities. Uh, what influenced me the most uh, was going to the 1964 World's Fair, and there was this panorama map of New York City, and I literally as a child had dreams about that map. So I knew I would have some connection to cities, but it was being next to Prospect Park, which really formed my early childhood. I had a playground across the street, but it was Prospect Park where I formed all my early memories. Uh, My parents actually had a picture of me one month old on my mother's lap, my brother holding me in Prospect Park. So I was there within my first month and learned how to ride a bike there, played baseball, ran track, went on dates, uh, had family reunions. So it's a place that formed a lot of memories. Uh, But growing up in a city, I was fascinated by it. Uh, by the different types of buildings and architecture. And so for me, it helped shape what I am today. And I'm so grateful I was able to live in such a great neighborhood in Brooklyn, near Prospect Park, with so many uses and vibrant city life uh, that I knew then that was a seed that was planted in me to eventually become a planner.
0: And so here you are um, with $318 million park investment program under Mayor de Blasio. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, this is a program uh, that the mayor, we, well, we didn't know how much it was going to be at first. When I came on board, the mayor felt that we did not have an equitable park system. And he challenged me on what to do. Uh, there was a bill from a senator, state senator, that wanted to take money from the richest conservancies and give it to the underserved parks. I felt that was probably not the best approach, so the mayor said, okay, you have a few months to come up with a better alternative, and we did. Uh, we came up with this program called the Community Parks Initiative. Uh, what we did was we took a data-driven approach to find out how many parks in our park system receive less than $250,000 over 20 years, and that's not a lot of money. You don't even play for with a play. You can't even afford to buy a play unit, and when we did that, out of our 2,000 parks, 200 and 15 parks received less than a quarter of a million dollars over two decades. Those are children that had to play in an inferior park space for their entire life. And so we felt that was not fair. And so the mayor uh, said, let's do something. So uh, he gave me over $300 million uh, in our budget to transform 67 of those 215 parks from the ground up. Not a renovation tear the entire thing apart, and build an entire new park. And what was great about it is that uh, every single park that we designed, we did it in partnership with the community. They knew their neighborhood best. We had these visioning or scoping sessions, and they basically helped us design the park, including the children. It was so, so cute. Kids have a great imagination. We always had a, a table set aside for the kids, and they provided great input because they knew their play spaces better than us that program touched all the neighborhoods you wouldn't be surprised uh in whether it's northern manhattan or uh difficult areas in brooklyn staten island queens uh so that was what this effort was about we've already finished 15 of the first round of 35 uh, and then we'll finish the 67 by 2021 so this has been transformative because these neighborhoods uh this park is where they go for vacation. This is where they connect. This is where they meet lifelong friends. This is where they get healthy. And so now they have a quality park that other neighborhoods had for really the first time in some people's lifetime.
0: I've noticed there's still a lot of work to do uh, getting folks to understand the difference between equality and equity. And so what you're describing is truly equity, as opposed to equality, giving everyone the same thing, whether they Needed or not, equity is the emphasis on giving the most to those who need the most. Um, What steps do you think the planning field should take to create more equitable planning processes in general?
1: It's a difficult question. Um, I can define equity. Well, I define equity as fairness. People look for these long definitions. It's one simple word. Are you fair? Are you fair about how you distribute your capital dollars? Are you fair about how you engage the public? Are you fair about how you do your recruitment efforts? Are you fair about how you have upward mobility within your organization? So fairness is easy to measure. Once you start getting into planning jargon, uh, it becomes a little bit difficult. So I do know the organization is trying to pursue an equity guide, policy guide. Uh, So I hope through that journey they'll understand that Is equity just this basket to deal with all the issues of the non-white or minority population? Because in the guide, you see words like inclusive, social justice, empowerment, Uh, what is it? What is it we're really trying to achieve? So I would say first, which they're gonna go through this journey over the next year, break down what problem you're really trying to solve. If you wanna have an equitable process, that means when you go out to the community, you have to be willing to really listen and hear the stories of what people went through in that community. I was a consultant, went to some communities of color, and they're saying, are you back again? You planned us for decades and nothing has changed. Why should I now invest another year in this planning process knowing that there's a low likelihood that anything will be implemented? But secondly, when people come to these meetings, they're coming there with 10, 20 years of stories and pain and feeling they've been lied to, and it may come out as anger or distrust, but you first have to have this therapy session to really hear what has happened in this community, because there are stories to be told. Once you get through that step, then you can find out how to truly, truly have an equitable process that is fair to those that you're engaging. So this policy guide, I hope, will be an educational process for APA. I've been doing equity and diversity in APA for some 20 years, so we're making steps, uh, but, I'm hoping that this policy guide effort will really be not just helpful to the membership, but also helpful for the organization so they can really have an equity initiative that really speaks to this issue of fairness.
0: And I think it's gonna be a combination of big and small moves. And I think the more actionable, the more helpful it could be to your typical planner. For example, um, we often, will respond to an RFP, we just like the planning field. um, We see an opportunity for grant money and we're like, oh, this neighborhood needs this grant money. Even the idea that you should not pursue grant money, as well-intentioned as you may be, without first talking to the community, on the one hand is a small move, but it would be a big move in terms of mentality, shifting um, sort of the paternalism that happens, uh, even when folks think they're doing a good thing.
1: Very often, and I did this when I was in Raleigh, uh, I believe in that word public engagement. To get engaged is something quite serious. You have to form a relationship with the community, and it's not just when you're doing a planning project. So I spent my time as planning director. I was out there in neighborhoods, not just going to a meeting. I wanted to get to know the stories, know the history. And when you do that, you have a better understanding of who you're dealing with. You know, Courtney, I can read a paper about you and read a bio and say, oh, I know Courtney. But I can spend time with you and talk to you and dine with you. Now I can say, I know Courtney. And there's a difference, and to me, it's the very same Is when you do public engagement. It's engaging. It's listening to you. It's having you walk me around and explain stories about what happened in that park. Because very often, people attach their memories to place. And if you come in to redevelop it, you're not just redeveloping, you're tearing down my memories. That's where I got engaged. That's where I played baseball with my brother. That's where my father had that amazing talk with me. And then you come in and wipe it away. That's what we have to respect because all neighborhoods have stories. And to me, you have to have authentic public engagement where you really get to know someone. And when I started Raleigh, it was a journey that I had with the community that we were going to grow this city together. And it wasn't just me going in uh, saying what they needed. I knew them so well. I knew what they needed. I did a check-in. So if I pursued a grant, it's because I knew this is exactly what works for them.
0: So I want to hear a little bit more about your time in Raleigh. What were some of your accomplishments there? And curious about what's different um, between your position there and your position now.
1: Well, first coming in when I was hired, uh, Raleigh was – didn't know what they wanted to be when they grew up. They were kind of at that adolescent stage. Uh, So the first uh, was that we had to find out where did Raleigh want to go into the future? We didn't want to be Atlanta. Everybody told me they didn't want to be Atlanta. I said, forget about what you don't want to be. What do you want to be? It was a place under rapid growth, and so they wanted someone with big city uh, planning experience to come into the city. The first was that I wanted people to understand what planning meant and how it could change their life. And It was a relationship we had to form. We had to grow together because I did not want to have a top-down approach. So we had to have this conversation. I joked around, I didn't really like the joke, but I said you have to go from Mayberry to Metro because you are growing. Uh, Raleigh just was reluctant to be a big city. You know, they say Charlotte wanted to be a big city. Raleigh became a big city by accident. And they struggled because they had this southern identity, small town, yet they had over 400,000 people. So we knew that it was time to change. What we did was we talked about the future. Uh, We ended up doing a comprehensive plan that was a real vision effort, but it was more of an opportunity for the public to get to know the city, the city to get to know the public, for agencies to get to know one another. We had an outreach strategy. We also had an In reach strategy because prior to that, the planning, uh, the the city conference, the plan they thought was the planning department's plan when it was the city's plan. And so we had to take all these separate plans sustainability plan, transportation plan, parks plan and basically remove all of them so we had one plan, one vision for the city. That was major. And so now, rather than have a transportation plan, we had a transportation element. And so now the entire city agency, all the city agencies were invested in the comprehensive plan. For the public, we wanted to make sure that this was going to be a predictable document that the council will rely on to make decisions. So that was something that I felt that was very important. In terms of actual projects, we started to change downtown. It was easy to do development out in the greenfield, but it was so difficult to do development downtown. So we had to change all the rules. As a result, we opened up our main street. It used to be a pedestrian mall. We opened it up for traffic, transformed the entire downtown. That small investment created $3 billion worth of investment in our downtown. I also came up with a plan for a transit hub for the warehouse district, which is actually opening in about a week, so i will be there for the ribbon cutting. It's called Raleigh Union Station. That was another project that probably is the most for me, rewarding in my entire career because everyone thought it could not happen. And now we have a transit hub and a train station that uh, will be opening up in about a week. Uh, Then it was just uh, the comprehensive plan implementation where we had these eight growth centers throughout the city. They're now emerging. We have Midtown, Cameron Village. So it's just making that plan a reality. And now people have choices uh, where they can live. It's not just suburban homes and now it's mixed-use centers, and they're now under construction. So it was a phenomenal journey, but we did this with the community, and they're pleased because now it's uh, the plan becoming reality.
0: Switching gears for a minute, you've been very involved with the American Planning Association for many years, including as president. I'd like to hear why APA is important to you.
1: Well, APA is important. One, uh, it is a network of planners. It is an organization where you can network and share ideas. It has incredible educational opportunities. Uh, you make lifelong friends and connections. Uh, but for me, it is the organization on the planet that if you want to know planning, you have to be part of this organization. Uh, they have resources. Uh are conferences, um, the webinars, the resources are endless. But you're now part of a like-minded organization that believes what you believe. I always believe that as planners, we are guardians of the future, and we have this collective platform among our colleagues where we're really at the front line, making our communities better, our cities better, and our planet better. So for me, it is absolutely rewarding. And the other benefit is AICP. I'm also a certified planner, and uh, I'm moved by the Code of Ethics. I read it twice a year just to keep myself grounded. It reminds me what my purpose is as a planner, to read the aspirational part of that code, I know all planners share that those values, and so I believe uh, the profession is one of the most important professions because we're collaborative, it's interconnected, and interrelated to so many other issues, and so I just enjoy being part of, of an organization that thinks like I do.
0: So I saw recently that cars are going to be completely banned in Central Park. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about that from you. Also, you know, Bryant Park, Central Park, the High Line, very splashy, very sexy park improvement. But I um, want to know about some less well known examples of park success stories in New York.
1: Okay. Well, yes, no more cars in Central Park on June 27th, my birthday. The mayor didn't know he was giving me a great birthday gift. <laughs> uh, the mayor was amazing at the press conference. Um, the park opened in 1857. Uh, he said it wasn't designed for parks, Frederick Olmsted and Calvert Vox, and he was right. And so he said, parks are for people. And he was gonna ban cars, and he came through on that promise. We banned cars in Prospect Park uh, last year, and now we're gonna do it this year in Central Park. So we're so delighted that there's no more exhausts, you don't have to look over your shoulder, that now the park is gonna be given back to the people. So it was an amazing announcement, and so June 27th, anybody visiting New York, you will not see a car in Central Park. Uh, You've mentioned the success stories, and each one of those are successful. We have two proposals uh, that people are very excited about. Uh, One is our Anchor Park proposal. It's our goal to make old parks new again. It's a 150 million effort to take some of our classic older parks and make them new again. Central Park benefited from a lot of philanthropic support, but some of the other parks did not. And so there's St. Mary's that's getting a full makeover, Astoria Park in Queens getting a makeover, High Bridge in Northern Manhattan. These are parks that are now older parks that will be new with an infusion of about $30 million each. The High Bridge, this bridge was restored that now connects the Bronx and Manhattan. It was a bridge that served as an aqueduct, but back then people would wear their Sunday best and cross it. Uh, it was just amazing to go from one borough to the other looking over uh, the, uh, the, the East River, the Harlem River. Uh, now it's restored. And it's another gem in Highbridge Park that people are very, very excited about. Parks and All Borders, another cool initiative. Uh, we now want to make more, have a more a seamless public realm in New York City. We did an analysis that parks represents 14% of the New York City's footprint. Streets and sidewalks represents another 26%. So we merge them together. 40% of New York City is in the public realm. Yet, they're handled differently by different agencies. The average citizen does not know whether they're walking on parks property or the department of transportation, and they don't care, but the agencies did. So we came up with this approach where all the agencies are now working together to create a parks without borders unified approach. Olmsted, the famous landscape architect, once said that the sidewalk adjacent to the park should be considered the outer park, and that's what we're doing today. You see a sidewalk, I see an outer park next to a park. So we're redesigning and capturing that sidewalk, and in some cases a street, to be part of our public space system. And we own it, we don't have to acquire it. Most cities are bad land managers when it comes to their public realm, so we're rethinking the entire public realm system in New York. Jeanette CityCon did it with Times Square. It was a road, she closed off the intersection of the world, and traffic still functions. So we're doing this in other places throughout the city. We're capturing streets, we're changing our sidewalks, we're putting more benches on the sidewalks because parks close, but sidewalks never close. We're also lowering fences and punching more openings into parks so that they're more accessible to people so they don't have to walk three or four minutes to an entrance. So we're lowering fences, putting more openings, reinventing sidewalks, in some cases, streets. If you go to Flatiron District, There you are right next to Madison Square and people love the experience of sitting in what we call underperforming asphalt that now has a public purpose. So these are some of the other exciting things happening throughout New York City. We have 130 million visits to our parks in New York City every year and it shows you how popular our public space and parks are in New York City. So we're expanding that further because we want to make sure that uh, with density you need open space. We want to make it the best open space as possible. I have a saying that People may sleep in their apartments or their homes, but they live in the public realm. We wanna make that the best public realm as possible.
0: A lot of exciting things for New York City. Yes. I know you travel a lot, uh, so speaking of cities, I'm wondering if you have a favorite.
1: I have three, and they're related. So my favorite cities are San Francisco and New York, and the other one is Sydney. And I like to tease my friends in Australia, when people ask me how do you describe Sydney, I will tell them if San Francisco and New York had a baby, it would be Sydney. So those are my three favorite cities. Uh, If I travel more, I may update my list. Uh, The other honorable mentions happens to be Savannah and New Orleans. So those are the rounds off the top five.
0: So I'm wondering in your mind what the field of planning is getting right these days. What are you inspired by happening in the profession?
1: What I've enjoyed from this conference, and I see this trend, is a full understanding about equity. Uh, It is becoming a concern more and more. Affordable housing is on everyone's lips, whether you're in a small town or in a large city. Uh, This concern about affordability is growing and income inequality. That's a trend that will continue, and APA is really at the forefront on addressing this issue, whether it's research papers, whether what you're hearing here at the conference, and so this is gonna to continue to be an issue as we have our population aging and will not have the same capital they need to live in. Or you're seeing more and more people moving to cities and as a result, the demand for housing is increasing. So APA, in my opinion, is at the forefront really figuring out what to do, do with the issue of both equity housing affordability because more and more people will be moving to our cities, but we're now seeing this happening in even rural areas, which is a bit of a surprise, or suburban locations. And where people choose to live to find an affordable place will have impacts on our transportation system. It'll take time away from families because they now have to commute further. Uh, so this is an issue where APA really is uh, at the forefront, and that's a comfortable trend, at least it's a trend I like that I am seeing. Uh, Changing demographics, it's still something that most people are tiptoeing around. You may recall I was talking about this back in 2008, 2009. Well, it's hitting us now. It's becoming a reality, Whether it's national politics or local politics, this is still an issue people are grappling with, and APA also understands this, and they're trying to offer uh, their members advice about how to deal with something that will be with us for the rest of the century.
0: How about the flip side? Is there an area where you feel like there's still more work to do?
1: It would still be the same on the changing demographics. It's still a difficult topic, unfortunately, with our national politics. Uh, Race is, for the first time since I grew up in the 60s, is a topic we're going to have to discuss again. It's uncomfortable, uh, but it's something we cannot avoid. Uh, You're seeing it in the protest. You're seeing it in the discussion of monuments. Um, It it is somewhat of the rise of of white privilege, because I think as people see the demographics, it's where do I fit into this picture. I'm not sure how APA can deal with it, but as planners, we deal with this on the ground. So that's something I think they're gonna have to take a deeper look, because it's a reality we can no longer shrug our shoulders or avoid that conflict. Uh, It's gonna come to a head as we approach the 2020 census, and it's gonna have some huge ramifications about how we plan for our communities and cities going forward. So that is something that is always difficult, and I know APA's heart is in the right place, but to truly not just dip your toe into the lake, but really jump in to figure out how do we offer guidance to our members that are on the front line when it comes to neighborhood change.
0: Wondering if, uh, in closing, you have any books you're reading, blogs you check out, things you wanna plug, any resources that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Well, the one book I'm dying to read, and during this conference, I sent a message to my wife and daughter that always looking for ideas is the color of law. I keep hearing about that book. I haven't uh, read it yet, but I hope my wife and daughter are listening, and they will either Father's Day or my birthday. It's coming up. Get me that book. Uh, in terms of blogs, um, uh, I'm a big fan of City Lab. I'm a, Twitter is where mostly I get my information. I'm a big Flipboard subscriber, so I have certain topics. Uh, So, uh, of course, APA, uh, City Lab, Next City, uh, those are the blogs that I I read. But I also look at my Twitter feed and see what my friends and my other thinkers out there in the world are reading and then read those articles. So that's what I tend to um, definitely more in the digital world right now where my Flipboard will guide me to what I want to read each and every day. But The Color of the Law, I do hope it will be wrapped in a nice gift bag for my birthday or Father's
0: Day. I think it's a must-read for every planner, honestly, and I hope uh, folks do get a chance to check it out. I want to thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights today. Sounds like a lot of fantastic things happening in New York City, and I appreciate your thoughts on the planning field in general. So thank you. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at